welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And you can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online around the globe, in the U.S. and abroad, 24-7. But every Monday, you'll find me right here, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on AdrenalineRadio.com. So welcome, our regular listeners. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Our new listeners, thanks for giving us a, a try. Um, we're hot and heavy into film awards season. Uh, and we're going to hear from a couple of uh, potential award nominees uh, a little bit later here in the show. But I got to tell you, now if you're not listening right now or if you're paying attention to something else like shopping for Cyber Monday, you can shop and listen at the same time. Or... If you're watching the NASA channels for our next uh, space, spaceship that is landing on Mars, that's okay, too, because I am, a, as many of you know, I am a space geek, thanks to my pal Buzz Aldrin. So I wish I was watching it. Um, I don't have a TV in here. I think I need a laptop or something to watch, you know, Mars landings in the studio. But anyway, um, I am very excited about our guests that we have today, particularly one uh, writer-director Chris Mull is going to be calling in at the quarter-hour mark to talk about his feature film, Astral. Fascinating, fascinating narrative feature. It is spellbinding. The premise bre- blends the ideas of astral projection with shadow people. Shadow people has been studied for many, many, many decades and is well-documented historically, uh, to tribal standards, in present day, a lot of studies done back in the uh, 1930s to 50s. Um, So now to see this spin, where we're looking at astral projection, which many think it's a pseudoscience, if at all, uh, blended with shadow people, nice little thriller. And I can't wait to talk to Chris about this, especially some of his cinematography is just outstanding uh, in terms of what he and his cinematographer do with negative space and creating a visual tonal bandwidth. And at the half hour mark, we have Tracy Tandon, first time feature documentarian with who's going to talk about Invisible Hands. She explores child labor and trafficking um, in children that are under five years old essentially modern-day slavery. Very unique take on it. Has a lot of interviews in there and a lot of moving footage. And we actually see in some in countries such as India, we see these four- and five-year-old children making jewelry, um, making a lot of the products we have, but we also see them being trafficked uh, and, quote-unquote, hired for that very purpose. So Shirasi comes with a background out of investigative news. She was a reporter for ABC at one point, also for Bloomberg. So fascinating documentary, interesting subject matter. Earlier in the year, you've heard um, several of our guests on other films dealing with similar matters. So this is a hot button topic uh, in the world today. So she's going to be joining us at the half hour mark. But before we get there, let's let's Get into award season mode and Black Klansmen. 
Many of you already know Black Klansman Adam Driver picked up Spirit Award nomination for his performance as Flip in The Black uh, Klansman. Incredible performance. The movie, based on true story of Ron Stallworth, uh, a black police officer who infiltrated the KKK, posing as a white man with his partner actually making personal appearances. Um, Watching it unfold is... Something it truly something to behold. Uh, it's a fun movie. It's a timely movie. It's a topical movie. As topical today as it was when these incidents went down many decades ago. I am so excited. Wednesday before Thanksgiving, I had a chance to talk to Black Klansman cinematographer Chase Irvin and makeup artist Martha Melendez. Many of you may know Martha's work from the TV series. Uh, Unfortunately, it only lasted one season, The Get Down. Very, very talented makeup artist. And she really does a great job with Black Klansmen in creating natural look for everybody, including, quote-unquote, making Alec Baldwin look pasty and clammy. Uh, and I hope we get to the clip of her talking about uh, doing makeup for Alec Baldwin and Black Klansmen because it is, it's pretty funny. But first... Let's delve into the cinematography of Black Klansman and my interview with Chase Irvin. This is, uh, you know him, his work best. He did uh, Beyonce's Lemonade video, but he's working here with Spike Lee. Spike Lee has some of his own patented stylings when it comes to filmmaking. Most notable is a a double dolly, which of course gets implemented here. Um, we also, it very, very rare, hard to find, ectochrome. There are several sequences here that are actually shot on Kodak ectochrome, which plays into the whole look and feel of the film. Panavision lenses, older glass, anamorphic, ectochrome film, uh, no filters, Panavision cameras. This is a filmmaker's dream, a cinematographer's dream to create the look of Black Klansmen. So take a listen to this first excerpt of my exclusive interview with Chase Irvin as he talks about his approach to this film. What makes this film so entertaining and fun is not only the performances by J.D. and Adam and Topher, uh, is your cinematography This is not what I expected. It is not cookie cutter, period. There's a fluidity and you really play with your camera angles, your, you know, your depth of field and also your framing uh, in terms of varying it up between your wider angles, your mid shots and then your ECUs of which you only have a few. But the ones you have are very effective. And of course, you've got you know, Spike's patented double dolly shots going on. You can't do a Spike film without that. So I, I'm, I am so curious as to what your approach was in developing this visual tonal bandwidth for Black Klansmen because it really is, it's unique. Well, you know, honestly, I try not to... Uh kind of impose certain ideas that I have from reading the script. It was kind of funny because um, 
when I first talked to Spike, he, he handed me a script and I read it on a plane going to South Africa and I uh, got to my hotel room and I called Spike after and he was like, do you see images? And I said, yes, but I didn't actually. And <laughs> so I was lying. But uh, the reason I try not to do that is because I like to allow uh, a, a lot of the ideas that end up on the screen to grow out of the process of actually uh, uh, making the film. So mm -hmm. scouting and uh, discussions with the production designer Spike and uh, understanding the actors more and you know even I, I started taking all my scout stills on Polaroid and and I even went to Martha's Vineyard with JD and Spike over a weekend to just kind of study different films and hang out and I was shooting them and it felt like I was kind of investigating what this film could be and even into the testing process I had video cameras vintage lenses modern lenses, film cameras 16, black and white ectochrome, everything and I really just took all that footage and I sat in a, a DI theater with a colorist and I just watched it all and as soon as I responded emotionally to something, I would take a note. Mm -hmm. And the film is ultimately what I kind of experienced in that, in terms of like deciding what I was format, lenses, all that stuff. And then when I'm on the set, I'm actually constantly pivoting. I'm working with Spike and I'm trying to respond to his sense of humor and what he wants, uh, how he works with his actors and and um, all this stuff because you know I can't uh, I you know I'm fresh to his team so I don't know automatically we all have a shorthand we just had chemistry so the film is kind of a com uh, you know just a very organic thing it wasn't really uh, I knew this the special sauce that was going to make it work I just kind of uh, was constantly. Uh, um, adapting and changing and working out of a sense of necessity. Well, you know, and I love that. I love that you say that because as I'm, as I would watch the film, and I've seen it twice now, watching it, number one, the camera seems to be playing. You've got the camera playing with the ambiguity that's being created within this whole dynamic of Ron Stallworth and Flip, and as as they have things happening based on it's not what's expected or feeding each other lines trying to you know with flip trying to become ron stallworth to meet with david duke and the rest of the clansmen but yeah i can set it's thinking on the fly and then you'll see in adam's face you'll see a momentary pause and then there'll be a camera adjustment there'll be a change be it in light be it in positioning be it in the frame and it really creates this great visceral nature of everything's happening on the fly. You are in the moment. And I love that about this film. Oh, good. I, I'm glad it translated that way. I, I, that was kind of how it was created. So maybe that's the reason. And moving on from his approach... Let's take a listen to Chase's thoughts on shooting with ectochrome for... You said the magic word a few minutes ago, ectochrome.
ectochrome. Where did you find any ectochrome? I had uh, posted on social media asking if anyone had, you know, any ectochrome hidden in a locker because actually uh, Spike has a legacy of using that stuff. Mm, I know. He, he, in, in his uh, other films, he had cross-processed it. Mm -hmm. so he was using normal developing with the ectochrome, but I want to um, um, see what the results would be if we processed it in the E6 bath, which is traditionally how it's processed. And uh, the results were astounding. But, you know, even in the instant where we shot that, I had really only found four rolls from one guy in New York and then an apprentice of mine in New York had an additional role and in the opening scene with uh, Alec Baldwin we shot all four of those reels somehow I we had just enough <laughs> and uh, I didn't even you know I had no time to test it or anything as we shot that in pre-production so it was you know, when I went home that night, I was like, oh, my God, am I going to be fired? Because I, I didn't, <laughs> I, didn't uh, I didn't know, you know, and um, I'm so happy I we took the risk. And, you know, Spike pushes you to do that stuff, too. I don't, you know, I, he's the first one to kind of to say, like, I want to screen a 35 millimeter print at Cannes and it'd be like, oh my God. And then everyone else is starting to freak out, but he's always the one who just was like going for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I admire that about him. You know, I'm thrilled that you shot that, that whole opening sequence with, with uh, Alec Baldwin in the Ectochrome. That had, the film had me from the get-go. The minute that started unfolding, I was in, I was in hysterics. It looked fabulous. It looked period perfect. And then the content was just so funny. But I'm so thrilled yeah. you used the ectochrome there. So what did you use on the rest of the film then? Uh, we went to, uh, well, you know, it had to be fresh factory sealed stuff from uh, Kodak. That's uh, Vision 3. That's kind of the premiere. Mm -hmm. most modern stock and you know it, it, it looks beautiful um, and I was trying different techniques to kind of give it a different texture or um, uh, you know uh, feel and different scenes and so, so some scenes in the KKK members uh, house uh, I was flashing the film which is kind of an old technique which is um Panavision's brought out a few new modern products uh, that use LED technology that make it a little bit easier to use. So we were using that in and, and some of those scenes and then, um, you know, playing with different saturations of light and, mm -hmm. and underexposing certain scenes. It was, it was all kind of, uh, you know, it, it, it's a, it was a strange part of project to be a part of because when you read the screenplay, it's so full of uh, racist uh, verbiage that's really offensive. And when you're reading this, you don't really know if it's going to be dark. I mean, the script has absurd things happen in it. So you know that there's kind of this spikely thing yes. about it. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but you don't necessarily know when it's going to be dark or if it's going to be absurd and interesting and funny and dark and it kind of the film kind of uh, you know it goes in the middle there it's kind of both so finding out how to approach those scenes is really organic because you know something that I had you know read as being very kind of uh, dark you know we're shooting and Spike's laughing his head off next to the monitors and I'm like oh okay well now I understand <laughs> you know it's a I, you had to be loose on it because he, because of the nature of the, the writing really mm-hmm. well, I have to say you keep well you know at its heart there's very dark subject matter here but the yeah. comedy that ensues from the truth you do visually keep the film with a lighter visual tone until we get into moments and I, and I, I know you were tweaking lighting, especially in the sequence with Harry Belafonte as Jerome Turner. That whole sequence of him relating the stories of lynchings is so powerful and the stillness of the camera, but yet how slowly... You know, because it's cut. So there's, you know, he tells part of it. We cut to present day. We go back. And each time the camera's going in a little closer. So beautifully shot with the mix of those black and white photographs. Absolutely gorgeous sequence, Chase. Thank you. Thank you. Was that a difficult sequence? Was that one? Was that an on the fly? Or did you give that sequence any kind of pre-thought to its construct? Yeah, I mean, uh, that was a very special day of shooting, actually. It was probably the second to last day. The last day of production, we just only really shot inserts and uh, the last shot of the film with them in the hallway. Mm -hmm. Um, So we spent almost four hours really preparing for um, Harry to to show up. And... um, you know, we all wore our tuxedos to set. Everybody on the crew, <laughs> to, you know, paying respect. That's adorable. And, uh, it, it was just really special, and I, you know, you felt the soul on set. We had all these, uh, you know, background actors. That we all... And that's Chase Irvin, cinematographer on Black Klansman. You will hear more of Chase either later on in the show today or on BehindTheLensOnline.net later this week. But right now, I'm very excited to welcome Chris Mull to Behind the Lens. Hello, Chris. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. I am fascinated with Astral. Absolutely fascinated. Really? Thank you. Where did... The astral or the, the film or uh, projection itself? <laughs> Actually, both. Actually, both. Uh, but this film, Chris, is just your melding of the concepts of astral projection and the well-documented legends and lore of shadow people is absolutely... It is creative. It's inventive. It's novel. It grabs you and it holds Thank on you. to you from beginning to end. Where did Thank the I, where did the idea for this story come from? Um, well, funny enough, I, my brother 
was uh, writing a book, or is currently still finishing it, um, about the history of mankind. Um, and while he was doing it, he came across this theory of astral projection, because he was researching uh, esotericism and religion and spirituality. Um, and so when he learned about it, he decided to actually try astral projection. When he did, he started basically suffering from sleep paralysis and and the the same sort of things that we, we touch on. There were a number of uh, moments where he, he came to me later and explained he'd been trying this. Um, and we thought the, the actual, it would make a perfect narrative story for us to use uh, in a character world. I mean, just... I was just blown away by that. And then, but then you bring in, thanks to an incredible performance by Frank Delane as, yeah, as, as Alex, you bring in this whole idea of shadow people um, that I just, uh, that I've been watching films and documentaries on that for decades and am just so fascinated with that. So these two concepts together, this was right up my alley. You couldn't have made a more perfect film for, to get me to watch it, Chris. Oh, okay. you know, so well, that's good. How well, I, hope, I hope everyone feels the same way. But it's funny because since we, since we were working on the project and since people have begun seeing it, um, we re- I realized how prevalent an issue it is. And, mm-hmm. and there are a number of people that suffer from things like sleep paralysis or who have seen these shadow figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and Frank himself actually had suffered from sleep paralysis, which is one of the reasons he was quite excited about doing the film. I mean, just the authenticity that he brings to the role of Alex, the panic and the fear by the third act. First and second acts of the film, he's playing it off as, yeah, maybe it's something, maybe it's not, you know, just brush it off the shoulder and ignore it. But then it starts intensifying. And... The, and the girlfriend gets, you know, she gets drawn into this while his friends are still poo-pooing it. But then yeah. we see the videos that they're making at night. And and we're watching it as he's actually recording it while he's sleeping or projecting. And that's where you visually, you and your DP, Charles, knock it out of the park. Those visuals, oh, your you. use of negative space with the black edges filling in what normally would just be empty. We have the tendrils of smoke that come, you know, on the sides or come behind Alex's head. How did you go about, when did you start working on your visual design to marry with this particular story? Was it in the writing process? Did you wait till the script was done? And then you and Charles sat down and said, hey, wouldn't this be cool? I'm real because it's well, a I, perfect marriage. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I mean, um it's I guess it was a little bit of both. I'm quite a visual person, particularly when it comes to writing. Um and my brother is more is more of a literary. So when we were writing it together, I kind of I was visualizing it myself. But at the same time we have we bounce off one another, we have these conversations, and I think once Charles became involved in those conversations, which was around, I think, two or three months before we were shooting, um, we, we did a couple of test shoots and we started looking into it, and uh, and it was something that we'd always conceptually had this idea of, particularly from a number of the experiences Michael had 
has undergone. Mm-hmm. Um, we had this idea of how we wanted it to come across. And it's very difficult trying to touch on someone's spiritual awakening through simply watching them whilst they sleep. Um, but it was something that we tried to use. We tried to use as much as we could to visualize that um, and bring bring these figures more to life um, on in a in a in a film platform. Mm-hmm. And you do that so beautifully with the production design, particularly in Alex's bedroom um, when he's trying to astrally project. You've got your mood light, your mood lamp in there. You know, I'm so glad that they brought those back. And you know into current yeah. culture from the 60s and the 70s. Yeah, and the, that, the lava lamp. Yeah. And, I mean, that lava lamp is watching that and then the way you play with speed, with the, you know, with the, with the weight, with the, you know, DIY metronome, so to speak, that is mm. suddenly going back and forth and back and forth. And then you've got the lava lamp and the way that that's moving internally, the speed is altering as we feel this presence coming, you make it very viscerally tactile and from, with visual, you know, tools. And it, it's so effective, so effective, Chris. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's something we, I know we'd had, Charles and I particularly had a number of discussions about how to, how to get it across on screen and add the, the because of the difficulty, I, I'm a big fan of uh, genre films. That actually that that look at more or less what you can't see, and it's mm-hmm. the fear of the unknown and not yeah. seeing that. And I think when we were trying to visualize it, it was and particularly conversations again with the production, our amazing production designer, that when you're having those conversations, you're trying to find, utilize as much of the on-screen space to really help tell the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you do a wonderful job, and then of course when we get into, you know, the the reading room, quote unquote, of the author Michelle, beautifully played by Juliet Howland, um, as she goes. Oh yeah, to do she's it. absolutely amazing. Yeah. Oh my God, the look, what she brings in terror, with the look on her face. But then you very keenly, you and Charles, you've got the camera set, so we're really only seeing half of her face. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so you keep us in limbo between reality and the beyond. And it- yeah, well, I mean, that on that particular scene as well, it was it was actually the most difficult for us to shoot. We we'd started for we had the the longest amount of time because we shot the entire film in twelve days. Wow! Um, and we had the most amount of time on that particular scene, which is what we wanted to give it. Uh, so we had two days for that. But within the first, I think, two hours, we were struggling. It just it wasn't working visually. Something just wasn't quite right. And thankfully, my amazing producer stepped in and just took everyone out the room. And we had a conversation with the actors and with Charles, and we blocked through everything. And what we resulted in was far better footage than we could have had if we'd carried on the way we were. Oh, I mean, that sequence looks beautiful. And there again... Kudos to your production designer. I mean, first you have that beautiful, the, the peacock-colored tablecloth on on yeah. the, the on the seance table, and then when that comes off, you've got the Ouija board as actually built into the table itself. 
the use of color in there, that's where we really get to see color expanding. For the bulk of the film, I notice you keep it very simple. It's, you know, uh, it's a cooler tone until we get into uh, the nighttime scenes where Alex is trying to project and trying to connect until we get into yeah. the scenes with Michelle. Then you've got color. You bring in your reds, um, you know, with Michelle and the seance table, the, the peacock tablecloth. You've got your blues, your aquas, your teals. Yeah. And then in the background. And I think, and I think for us, thematically, when we were discussing that with the production designer, it was really crucial that we subconsciously allow audiences to, to visualize what's going on through the use of color. Mm-hmm. Well, and so for us, it was it was a big thing to particularly, as you mentioned, the reds and the blues mm-hmm. because we wanted them to play off one another. Yeah, and the, the actual tones within the color spectrum for the reds and the blues that you use, beautiful, beautiful compliments. Um, oh, thank you. Well, I'll have to I'll have to thank my cinematographer for that as well. Oh well, no, I think Charles just has done an amazing, amazing job. But you know, another aspect that you tap very, very keenly tap into with this film, with Astral, is your music and Ed Watkins' work. What were you looking for in terms of the sonic experience to marry with your visuals and your story here? Um, I think when we initially started, and uh, I'd worked with Ed before, so we had a good relationship. Um, and so I think when we initially started, we were talking about these ideas of using the music to really enhance the visuals. Um, and that was almost more on a scene-by-scene basis. But I think once we got into the edit suite and we started looking at, we started adding the music to to the edit and working through it, we quickly realized that what we really needed was a thematic approach, particularly mm-hmm. with the, so it, it, it kind of, it builds right the way through the film and crescendos by the, the final climax scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so originally we actually had almost the entire film scored and thankfully Ed was amazing with us and just, we scrapped everything and just started fresh by the end of the edit and really kind of found a, t- a tone and a theme that worked to crescendo towards the end. Wow. Did you have any hand in the specific instrumentations that Ed was using, or was that all him? Because you've got some wonderful, you know, almost the violin psycho-esque moments coming in and other, uh, you know, instrumentation that is it's sharper and it's, and it's more rapier in how it hits you sonically. Yeah. Well, I think we actually, funnily enough, we've moved more towards stringed instruments mm-hmm. from the original version. And I think that was because we'd, we'd found the right theme. I think one of the early pieces Ed had given us for earlier on, I think, I think it was actually the title sequence. And that was something which I was, as soon as Ed had sent that, that actually remained itself. And we built, around every, we built everything around that and developed the theme from there. And so I think once we heard that, we knew the sound we wanted Astral to have and developed it from that, that title sequence. I mean, I, the, calling into play with your score, with the music, is your sound design as the whole. Because whenever this malevolent pr- presence is about, so to speak, once Alex is more or less open the door, let him come in through yeah. his astral yeah. projection, we hear the rumblings, we hear creaks. And it's not like 
old house creaks of floorboards. These are more like rocks that are grating against each other. That sound design yeah. that you bring in, that taps into the unseen as well. And I really, really like what you did with that. Oh, thank you. I mean, we were very fortunate that we had an amazing sound team working on it, um, Hackenbacker, who had done uh, who've done some amazing work on The Descent on Downton Abbey. And so they came on quite late, funnily enough. But the work that, that went into restructuring and, and finding and finding those subtle moments and almost building an atmospheric uh, tone right the way through that was particularly heightened in the, the, the darker scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely, it's not something, I mean, uh, Nigel, who, who runs the studio, kind of sat down with us and was very excited when we initially bought the project there and is one of the most creative, talented people I've met that once we started discussing how to, to, to bring those sound elements into the story, we realized that there was no kind of, there was no way back. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, you just, you hit every beat that you needed to hit, Chris, to bring this film to fruition. And this yeah. is your first feature. So, I mean, it's, it is, yeah. this, the workmanship here and the end result belie it being your first feature i've got to tell you um thank you yeah what was that learning curve like for you (laughs) making this leap because you had done your series two line terrors which was an episodic you have some shorts under your belt but then you jump into a feature and you jump into a feature like this where color is color is key sound is key music is key very tech yeah aspects that can be technically challenging well i think um when we first started um we actually my producer and i had a number of conversations and he's uh, he's actually himself an amazing writer director um and so we kind of we've taken it in turn to produce one another's material um so he's very much in tune with the creative aspect so the two of us had large conversations during our shorts about the, the notion of, of working on a feature and the difficulties that come with a feature. And yet we had a, a, a great friend who had mentioned to her, who after a number of conversations had, had mentioned that pretty much shooting a feature is the same as shooting a short on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. And I think just as long as you're prepared enough and you do have those creative discussions early on, you can afford yourself the opportunity and the ability to put it into practice on even on a a 12 day shooting period. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, you know, it just, I'm just amazed seriously at what you pulled together because the story concept in and of itself is a visually challenging one. And then to see the end result here. So, you know, I'm curious, Chris, what did you learn about yourself in the process of, making Astral, bringing it to fruition, that you can now take forward into future film projects? I mean, to be honest, I've I've had a number of conversations with people since, and I think it's always nice to be able to reflect on the work you've done and be in that position that you can sit back and allow audiences to make their own judgments. Um, For me, as a personal reflection, there are a great deal of creative improvements I'd like to make towards Astral or any film I like, uh, I, I work on going forward. And so I think I, I, 
almost say for me, I didn't attend a film school per se. Mm -hmm. So having produced Astral felt, and my producer and I remark on a number of occasions, how much Astral felt like film school, the practice of understanding pre-production, production, production, post-production, finding distribution. (laughs) It's almost the entire spectrum of what you need to understand in order to make films from beginning to end. Um, and so the realization of every element that is required, that the relationships that are required to develop upon, there's just so much. I mean, it's difficult to really pin it down. Um, I would say for me, one of my biggest learning curves have been the, the script process and writing. Mm-hmm. I've developed so much more as a writer since we originally produced that first script. Um, and my brother and I are currently working on a couple of other scripts that are far more developed and further ahead than the early versions we'd had of Astral. So it's nice, I think, creatively to have benefited from that. Mm-hmm. Now, what kind, of pro- what kind of scripts are you and your brother working on? And how, and how is this collaborative process of brothers working together? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fun. It's difficult, a little more difficult now that I moved to New York and my brother still lives in London. Aside from that, we actually, funnily enough, talk more now than we ever have so we 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 facetime every single day pretty much um but my brother has been there's almost there's only a year or so difference in age Mm -hmm. so we've always been very close and have a very similar outlook and a very similar uh, we have very similar relevant issues we'd like to get across uh or themes we'd like to touch on and so i think as a as a writing partner my brother and i are looking forward to what other projects kind of will develop into. Um, the other projects that we're currently working on are very similar in vain. In it's, I've someone once, someone mentioned to me once that Astral was almost a, a man versus man uh, in that. In that, Alex, it's Alex's journey on mm-hmm. himself, and I, I completely agree with mm-hmm. that. And funnily enough, the, the the projects that we're working on now are almost uh, are, are pretty much man versus nature, which is um, a, a tale about a man, one man's survival um, alone in the in the desert, which is based on a true story. And the second is about the dangers of artificial intelligence, and very much man versus technology. Now, will that be uh, will that be a nonfiction? Will that be a documentary, or will that be a narrative? The one on intelligence. They were, they're both uh, they're both um, fiction, both pieces of fiction. Ooh. Ooh. But they are rooted and grounded in the the dangers of of nature and of technology. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! I mean, I can't wait for them, Chris. I really can't. But right now, oh, everybody can see Astral. I know it's on VOD because I saw it on Time Warner Spectrum. Um, it is that yeah. I saw that it they've got that listed as in the new release section there, and I think it's on your di- on digital platforms as well. It is. It's on iTunes, Fandango now, um, uh, Amazon, uh, Vudu, so pretty much every everywhere. It's you everywhere. Can rent, I think. Well, Chris, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today and talking about Astral. Um, this is definitely. Anna, thank you for having me. Uh, this is a definite, definite must-see pick of mine, um, indie pick of mine for this last quarter of the year. Um, So well done. I hope you will come back on the show again. 
This has been a delight. Definitely. Oh, oh. definitely. I'd love to. Chris, share those projects in future. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. And I will talk to you again soon. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Chris Mull, co-writer and director of Astral. And seriously, people, I this is a film you will be fascinated by. And it does star Frank Delane, which so many of you already know. Um, yeah, it's it is a very, very, very cool film um, with some really interesting subject matter as its thematic base. Well, right now, I am excited to be welcoming the wonderful writer-director of Invisible Hands, Shracy, is did I say it right? Yes, Shra- perfect. Shracy Tandon, welcome, welcome to Behind the Lens. Wow, you didn't pick easy subject matter for your documentary, did you? No, definitely <laughs> not a big night chick flick. <laughs> no, this this is uh, this is not a chick flick. And what I love is we're seeing more and more documentaries like yours, that are now starting to touch on um, trafficking and modern slavery. And this isn't something of the past. This is something that is very much present day around the globe. And um, Sid Harth, one of your one of your experts in interview subjects, he actually has been on the show before um, talking about his work that he'd done. Um, so I'm very thrilled to have you on to talk about Invisible Hands. You come out of a news background. You are a journalist. Where? What was it that spoke to you that said, make this documentary? Um, I think, you know, there are moments uh, in, in, in our lives in the film, documentary, media world, where certain subjects and issues really get highlighted. Um, and the coverage on certain topics were just fever pitch. So, you know, about a decade ago, we saw a lot of films come out on climate change uh, and global warming, um, and then we saw a lot of films come out on uh, the refugee crisis and immigration, and recently we've been seeing films on uh, politics and dirty money and politics and, and finance uh, issues. And I think now we're at a point where, there's a lot of focus and talk on trafficking and modern-day slavery, um, which I am so excited to see that the world is finally turning its attention to an issue, as you rightly said, was something we all thought was from the past, something mm-hmm. that you know you could only see in these little black and white or sepia photos from 100 years ago, which is so mm-hmm. not true. Modern-day slavery is all around us, um, and it's also taking place right here in the United States. You know, but something that you hone in even deeper from the trafficking and from modern slavery, you're honing in on the children that are being affected by this and how they are being used and abused. Was that your intent? Was it your intent from the start to focus on children or and use that as your as your your point of light? Or did that develop as you dug into researching the topic? Mm-mm. That's a great question. The the children were always going to be the focus of the film from the second we started writing and developing and, and thinking of our storyboard um, because I feel like they are a 
sort of segment of society that is often so overlooked mm-hmm. and ignored. Um, children, as you know, are completely voiceless. They are extremely vulnerable, highly susceptible to exploitation, um, and they also don't feature when politicians are passing legislation. They don't vote. They don't contribute to the economy. And so they are less thought about in a very global context. Um, and I think when we think about modern slavery, we often think about adults right. um, working in farms and factories and plantations. But there are close to 200 million children who are child laborers. And um, many of them aren't just working there um, from their own free will. A lot of them are trafficked, mm-hmm. and they're forced um, forced into, into labor. Well, you know, and, and right away, you grab us with images uh, as soon as the documentary starts, and we see young children hammering out jewelry. And, you know, a lot of people think, you know, you go to the store and, okay, you see 50, you know, on the lower end price point of jewelry, the mass production, not the single significant piece jewelry but the mass produced pieces you don't think about where these things come from and right away you're going to get every woman out there that buys jewelry she's going to see this image of this child who couldn't have been more than six years old hammering out bracelets and it rips your heart out Mm. i think that's one of the problems with the capitalist society that we live in and this mass consumerism that exists in our world today. Um, I mean, you know, I think that we're having this conversation at a very timely moment where yeah. it's Cyber Monday today. We've just come off Black Friday. And people are so excited about getting the cheapest deals and the lowest price without much thought to where are our products even coming from? Who yeah. is making these things? And companies are also very precious to keep their costs low. Um, so I think thinking about, I mean, how often do we think about the things that we actually consume food-wise? You know, we look at the labels on our ingredients, we choose to buy organic products, we look at um, everything from the carb content to the fat content, and we're very conscious eaters today um, compared to, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago when all this information wasn't so readily available to us. Mm -hmm. If only we could share some of that thinking and pause in thought when we're buying jewelry, when we're buying clothes, when we're buying shoes. I mean, ask yourself, if a t-shirt is costing you $2, has anyone really made any money from making that product for you? Mm-hmm. And I'm not vouching for someone to go and spend hundreds of dollars on, you know, their day-to-day clothes or jewelry or, or even the food that they're eating, but there needs to be a thinking that goes in into how we shop and how we consume. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I completely agree, because what people don't stop and think about is when you're seeing all these great Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales, 70% off, 80% off, companies, are, they're, they're not reducing it without making some kind of profit on it. So then you have to stop yeah. and think, what is the price point that lets you sell that T-shirt for $2? How much were those workers who made that T-shirt getting paid a quarter a dime because every when they, when that price tag goes out there and prices are reduced the company is still making money 
And that's what people forget because that's what that's what consumerism and capitalism is all about. Yes, uh, absolutely. And it's you know, in some cases they're they're making very little money, and in, in many cases, like you see in our film, they're making no money at all. And yeah. that's the thing: child labor. Many times, having children work for you in your farms or factories and producing the goods, whether it's the raw materials or the assembling of your electronics or the stitching of the buttons on your clothes, a lot of that labor is coming for free from kids. Yeah. Um, there's a really great quote in our film uh, by the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Kailash Satyarthi. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Kailash, he shared his Nobel Peace Prize win with Balala Yousafzai. Mm-hmm. And they both won for fighting for children's rights and um, creating a safer world for kids and giving them an education. And Kailash says that globally there are a little over 200 million adults in the world that are jobless. And at the same time, there are also close to 200 million children in the world that are child laborers. Mm-hmm. And many of these kids are the very child children of those jobless adults. Yeah. So if we are able to take children out of the workforce and instead, you know, hire their families or their parents instead or the adults instead and pay them a fair wage, a lot of that will go away. Mm-hmm. But it starts with consumers. Yeah. Um, and then, it, you know, it, then it goes on to the corporations. Mm-hmm. And then the last piece of the puzzle is, of course, the government. Right. You know, I'm very curious, you know, how did you go about developing your through line here and the subjects that you and the subjects you chose to interview for this film? I picked people who were extremely experienced um, in the issue of paper, modern slavery, human trafficking, Folks that have been working on this issue on the ground in some cases for 30, 40 years. Yeah. Um, everyone from the activists to the heads of the, these NGOs to academics um, and even just the farm managers and the factory owners um, who are employing these, their children and who are purchasing kids from traffickers. I really wanted to understand how it happens and in what world do they think that this is okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing, Debbie, that was really important to me was to show not just that this is taking place in parts of Africa and Asia, but we have a really big segment in the United States as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who watched our film, that was a huge revelation to them was, wow, I can't believe this is happening in, in California, in Kentucky, in Carolina, you know, north and south, in mm-hmm. Tennessee. Um, we often associate these sort of human rights abuses and issues of slavery and child labor as being an Asia problem or an Africa problem. But um, it's taking place right here in our backyard as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's something that I, the first time I heard about that, which has been, it's been a couple decades now, and I was mortified, mortified. Because you've always heard about, you know, the the re- more repressed areas, economic areas within the United States. And you've seen things portrayed possibly in a comedic bent in TV or in movies with kids doing this, kids doing that, kids laboring. Um, but then when you actually see it in documentary form or in news reporting, 
and you have to take a step back. It really floors you when you realize this is happening right here in our backyards in the United States. We know it's happening elsewhere, but to have the blinders on and then have them taken off, it's quite revelatory, quite revelatory. And you do that with this documentary. Yes. And, you know, another thing that comes as a big surprise to people is that the United States, in the agricultural sector, there is no minimum age that has been set or enforced in this country. And that's because, you know, in the 1930s, during Franklin Roosevelt's era, during the New Deal, when they were putting in place laws to protect children in the, in the U.S., the agricultural sector was exempt. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is because it just goes to show how powerful the agricultural lobbyists are in the United States, as powerful as big tobacco, and they're as powerful as the gun lobbyists. They yeah. are deep-pocketed corporations and individuals. Um, who don't want the industry to be regulated by the government. Mm-hmm. And so that is why in so many parts of the, the states you will find 10-year-old children uh, picking blueberries, strawberries, sweet potatoes, and even worse, harvesting tobacco leaves. Yeah. And these kids are exposed to nicotine poisoning and have levels of nicotine poisoning in their bodies that are higher than pack-a-day smokers during harvest season. I mean, that's, that's so unacceptable on so many levels, but it's so shocking. And that's the kind of information that is not being imparted to the, pub, to the general public unless it's through work by somebody like yourself and a film like this. You know, I'm, I'm really curious for you, what was the most surprising or shocking thing that you learned as you were researching and going through and putting this documentary together? I think the most surprising thing was the ubiquity of child labor and uh, trafficked children around the world. I thought going into this film that it was going to take me months to, to dig this out and to be able to get the kind of access that we got um, and to have, um, you know, to be able to show these children on camera. But I was completely floored at how, first, how prevalent it was and also how easily accessible it was to, to see these children and to film them. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't take us much looking around or, or traveling um, an hour outside of most capital cities around the world, wow. and, and you'd find them there. The other part of the film that also was um, was very surprising or sort of um, ca- challenging and surprising to, to myself and my entire team was um, a moment in Ghana where we actually purchased children. We bought eight children from two separate child traffickers. We were under the disguise and pretense of cocoa farm owners. Um, I worked with a wonderful team of investigative journalists in Ghana. And um, with the use of hidden cameras and body cameras, we captured the entire exchange of buying eight children for around roughly 40 U.S. dollars per child. Oh, my God. And a lot of these children in Ghana are working on the cocoa farm 
that are selling chocolate with the likes of Hershey's and Cadbury and Nestle. So, you know, when you think again of picking up a, a chocolate for $1, um, where the cocoa has been sourced from Ghana, uh, it really makes you think twice. Wow. You know, what was the learning curve like for you stepping into the making of this documentary? It's your feature debut. You step from, you're still a journalist, but now you're a filmmaker. So what was that learning curve like for you to bring this all to fruition and see this documentary through to the end? It sounds like such a cliche, but having an incredible village (laughs) of people that I worked with uh, to really make it happen. I mean, you know, I know the director of a documentary gets a lot of credit because, yes, I understand that it is your, your baby in some ways, but every single individual on the film, whether it's the producer, the executive producer, your cinematographers, your editors, your line producers, field producers, your fixers on the ground, your sources, the people you're interviewing, they are so crucial to the telling of the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the chain, your chain is as strong as its weakest link. So just having people on the ground who were not just incredibly passionate about the subject, but also very skilled and trained in documentary films, knew exactly what sort of pictures and images we needed to get in order to tell the story mm-hmm. uh, to the best of our ability and help move the needle in this issue. Um, all, all of that really played a, a huge part. Um, and it's such a collaborative um, working environment because um, you're not the only person on the front lines of serving and documenting. You're there with your entire team who's also going through this experience with you and um, anything that you miss or anything that you eventually become numb or desensitized towards, you know, you have others around you just reminding you that this is crazy and this needs to be in the film. Mm-hmm. i got to ask you, how many hours did you and your editing team spend in the editing bay to put this together? <laughs> you know, were you, was this one um... of the, was this one of those <laughs> films where you were editing as you went along or did you wait until you amassed everything and then sat down to tackle the editing process. Because I know, especially with a documentary, it is a very long and tedious process. Yes. I think we edited every day for about 10 to 12 hours for six months. Oh, God. Um, We had 50 hours of footage, close to 50 hours of footage. Um, And it was heartbreaking because there was so much stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor that we wish could have been in the film. But it was also great because it allowed us to really flesh out the story and show the parts that were the most shocking and and, and the most um, revelatory and enlightening. Um, Editing is is sort of where where the film comes to life. It's where you write the story. And, you know, in documentary film, there's no script, there's no characters, there's no blocking of locations. you're writing as you're shooting, and you're writing as you're editing. Well, you know, um, it's so a- yes, it was. But it was also great in the sense that we had been filming for one year, so to be able to kind of go back and revisit some of the countries and the footage that we had shot 12 months ago, um, 
was was also wonderful. And and, and I love that so much of what we had filmed in Asia and Africa was mirroring in many ways what we were filming in the United States. Right. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I'm I'm impressed that you had 50 hours of footage, and because that that to me that is a testament to you as a storyteller that you knew what you wanted, and you were able to develop the story as you were going. I have to tell you, I have had directors on the show here. One had 400 hours of footage for a film that he called through. 400 wow. hours. Number one, I don't know who would keep shooting for 400 hours, <laughs> but 400 hours. So when I hear somebody who has been as efficient and expeditious as you with 50 hours and you put and you tell a story like like Invisible Hands, that's a testament to you and your journalistic skills, your reporting skills and your storytelling skills. You didn't waste time, money, or energy. You went. You knew what to go for, and you went there. Thank you. Um, no, I, I really appreciate you saying that. And I think there was a lot of the my background as a television news reporter and a journalist that comes into play when you're making documentary film, because at the end of the day, as a television journalist, I have always thought about my stories and my characters uh, in, in moving images. Um, and I have always thought about the film in terms of what we might get when we get there and what they might say. Mm -hmm. And of of course there's a lot of moving parts. Right. Um, But the only difference is, is that working in as a journalist, you, you only have three or four minutes to tell your story on the nightly news show. Right. Um, Whereas with documentary film, you have a lot more time to, to be able to flesh it out and, and develop it. But, you know, Debbie, I think you, you do get, a sense of when you've had enough and when you've gotten enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that comes from the, from when you are drawing your story and, and, and your storyboard. You know, we knew we wanted to uh, film in parts of Africa. We knew we wanted to film in parts of Asia. Um, and then we also knew that we definitely wanted to show um, parts of the United States um, as well. And once we felt like we had accomplished that, we stopped. I mean, the, the, the great thing about this issue was that it was such a meaty and widespread topic that we could have gone on for years, yeah. filmed for years. Um, and also the bad news is, is that we could have gone on for years because, of, you know, at some point you have to trust your instincts and say, okay, I think we've had enough, let's, let's stop. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we are all out of time on the show today. I This is... I can't thank you enough for calling in and talking about Invisible Hands. I would love to talk to you again about this film and your other projects. I, th- I think you're, you are just a wonderful storyteller, and this shows you are also a wonderful filmmaker. I mean, so... Thank you so much for having me. And, and of course, I'm I, so I have... I'm happy I got to share this with you. Oh, my God. I'm thrilled. And I have to say... All Philadelphians, all Eagle fans, you need to see this. Mrs. Rod Lurie is one of the executive producers. <laughs> I, yes, she is. Uh, you know, I'm hometown gal, so I, I give my shout-outs to Philadelphians whenever I can. So, And <laughs> Eagles Nation needs to get behind this documentary and see it. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> 
Oh, thank you, Tracy. Thank you so much, and I, I, I hope you'll come back on the show and we get to talk again. I would love to be back anytime. Oh, thank you so much. Bye bye. Thanks, Debbie. And that was Tracy Tandon, writer, director, producer of Invisible Hands. It is out now. It is all over. It is an incredible documentary. So we are all out of time. Until next week, Ned Airbar is back next week. He's going to talk about the California No, which hits uh, DVD, Blu-ray, and I think VOD next Tuesday. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 